Greetings and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. I'm so delighted you could join us. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of iFormerX podcast. And there's no question that direct oral anticoagulants have changed pharmacy practice and medical practice and are being increasingly used. Indeed, direct oral anticoagulants are now being routinely used in patient populations who are warfarin and other vitamin K antagonists were often avoided. For example, for the treatment of venous thromboembolism in patients with cancer. Currently, there are five direct oral anticoagulants on the market, Pixaban, Dabigatran, or Dabigatran, Adoxaban, Rivaroxaban are all approved for several indications. Batrixaban's use is limited to the prevention of venous thrombosis. Apixaban and Rivaroxaban are the two most commonly used OX uh, or direct oral anticoagulants due to better tolerability when compared to dabigatran, which is more likely to cause dyspepsia. And because they've been on the market longer than adoxaban, they're more used. Some clinicians prefer rivaroxaban because it can be dosed once a day, and others prefer apixaban due to its unequivocal superiority over warfarin in the Aristotle trial. But to date, there have not been any large randomized control trials comparing these two DOAC titans head-to-head. So I thought it would be useful to examine a recently published comparative effectiveness study that appeared in the April 2020 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. And here to discuss the results of this study are Dr. Amy Robertson and Dr. Michelle Bailly. Amy is an ambulatory care clinical specialist on faculty at the University of Kansas, and Michelle is on faculty at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and a clinical pharmacy specialist with the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks. Amy and Michelle have been co-authors on several iFormerX commentaries over the years and have been frequent guests on this podcast. So it's great to have you both back. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. We're happy to be here. Yes, thank you for having us back on the podcast today. So, Michelle, Amy, I'd like to start with a case study. I know that both of you have been directly involved in managing patients who take oral anticoagulants. So, I want you to imagine you're seeing RH today, who is an 82-year-old female who is here for a routine follow-up visit for blood pressure management. Uh, The patient lives alone, but is able to perform all activities of daily living. She currently takes lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide every morning and amlodipine at bedtime. As a routine part of your visit, you always remeasure the patient's blood pressure and pulse after conducting the interview. And this allows the patient to rest in a seated position for at least five minutes. Now, while her blood pressure measurement today is great, it's 128 over 58, you notice that RH's pulse is rather irregular. Indeed, it's irregularly irregular. And since an irregular pulse has not been noted in the patient's medical record before, you ask about symptoms such as dizziness, lightheadedness, palpitations, easy fatigability, or sudden loss of vision, sudden loss of strength, or difficulty speaking, and the patient denies all of these symptoms. She was not aware that her pulse was irregular in any way. Um, The patient's last E. 
EKG was uh, performed more than two years ago. So you ask the primary care physician to order one, which confirms your suspicions that this patient has atrial fibrillation. So this scenario is not uncommon, uh, given the prevalence of AFib in older adults and given that many don't experience any symptoms or only have mild symptoms. So I'm curious, what are some of the things going through your mind at this point and what your approach to anticoagulation therapy might be in stroke prevention in this patient? To start it off, there are several disease states that may lead to atrial fibrillation, including uncontrolled hypertension, underlying heart disease, hyperthyroidism, sleep apnea, obesity, or diabetes. So with regards to this patient, her blood pressure is controlled today, but a review of her history may provide us with some insight on if hypertension has been uncontrolled in the past. Underlying heart disease, such as coronary artery disease, valvular heart disease, cardiomyopathy, left ventricular hypertrophy, or heart failure may all contribute to the development of AFib. And so a review of patient symptoms and a previous echocardiogram would provide us with insight on the presence of structural heart disease if it's there. To assess hyperthyroidism, I would need to screen the patient for symptoms, get some laboratory values, including a TSH, and possibly even consider a thyroid scan or ultrasound. And a fasting blood glucose or hemoglobin A1c today would be appropriate if we needed to screen her for diabetes. After taking into account all of those disease states, I would also want to make sure that I obtain a detailed history of pertinent lifestyle factors that might contribute to AFib in this patient, including excessive alcohol intake, caffeine intake, tobacco use, or lack of physical activity. One thing we know is that the prevalence of AFib increases with older age, and our patient here is 82. One additional question that may arise with this patient is the question of cardioversion. Since she's been asymptomatic with no recent EKG, we really don't know how long she's been in AFib. A pharmacological cardioversion may not be as effective if she's been in AFib for more than seven days. She's currently hemodynamically stable, not requiring an emergency cardioversion. The risk of thromboembolism is present when performing cardioversion, and this patient is not currently taking an anticoagulant. So she would need to be anticoagulated for at least three weeks before considering cardioversion. If cardioversion is being considered more acutely, an alternative to that three weeks of anticoagulation could be to perform a TEE to assess for the presence of thrombi. Now, when it comes to determining appropriate anticoagulation therapy for this patient, we first need to assess her stroke risk. The 2018 CHEST and 2019 ACC-AHA atrial fibrillation guidelines now recommend using the CHADS-VASC score to quantify stroke risk. According to the CHEST guidelines, any patient with at least one non-gender CHADS-VASC stroke risk factor should receive anticoagulation while ACC-AHA recommends anticoagulation for patients with an elevated CHADS-VASC score of at least two in men and three in women. This patient has a CHADS-VASC score of four due to her age, gender, and history of hypertension, so she is considered to be at a high risk of stroke and qualifies for oral anticoagulation. 
Both guidelines now recommend direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, first-line overwarfarin and non-valvular AFib in the absence of any contraindications, so a DOAC would likely be my first choice. However, there are several patient-specific factors that I would like to assess prior to choosing a specific medication, including her medication adherence, her weight, renal function, dietary habits, insurance status, other medications such as over-the-counters, vitamins or supplements, and her ability and willingness to have regular lab monitoring performed. So, Michelle, let's talk about the results of the study you reviewed for iFormerX. Uh, unfortunately, this study doesn't have a cute acronym, but it's entitled Effectiveness and Safety of Apixaban Compared to Rivaroxaban for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation in Routine Practice, a cohort study, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in April 2020. We provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? So the investigators in this study conducted a retrospective cohort study to compare the safety and efficacy of apixaban versus rivaroxaban in non-valvular AFib. Patients who were 18 or older were included if they had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter and a new prescription for apixaban 5 milligrams or rivaroxaban 20 milligrams filled in the preceding 180 days. Data was obtained from a relatively large commercial insurance claims database, and the primary efficacy outcome was a composite of both ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. The primary safety outcome was a composite of intracranial hemorrhage or gastrointestinal bleeding. The baseline characteristics were fairly similar between groups with an average age of 69 and a CHADS-2 score of one or greater. There was a significantly lower rate of the primary efficacy outcome with apixaban versus rivaroxaban. The rate of the composite safety outcome of major bleeding was lower with apixaban versus rivaroxaban, and the bleeding event rate differences were primarily driven by lower GI bleeding rates between the two groups. Uh, so, Michelle, uh, as you indicated, this was a cohort study, so the investigators aren't able to control or account for all the variables that might have influenced the outcomes. But I'm wondering what you feel the strengths of this study are and if there are any confounders that make you a bit skeptical. We'll start with the strengths. This study did include a fairly large patient population with data extracted from a very large insurance database. The primary outcomes here were very similar to those presented in previous meta-analyses comparing DOACs, and the authors also included some additional safety outcomes here, such as additional information on bleeding events and the occurrence of either hepatitis or vasculitis. Now, although the database that they used was extensive, there were several missing data points um, from my perspective, including information on over-the-counter medications, race, socioeconomic status, BMI, or the has-bled bleeding risk scores. Almost 30% of the study population here was classified as overweight or obese, but the extent of obesity was not mentioned to evaluate the appropriateness of DOAC usage. Also, laboratory values were only available for approximately a third of the included patients, limiting our assessment of the appropriate DOAC dosing if a laboratory monitoring parameter was needed. 
The investigators only used primary diagnosis codes from hospitalizations for their event outcomes, which possibly could have excluded patients with a study outcome that was listed as a secondary diagnosis. Lastly, the investigators used the CHADS-2 score for risk assessment instead of the recommended CHADS-VASC risk assessment. So, Amy, let's return to our case. Recall that RH was discovered to be in atrial fibrillation during a routine blood pressure visit. The patient has no symptoms but is obviously at high risk for stroke. Let's assume the patient lives more than 50 miles away and getting routine blood tests would be rather onerous. Let's also assume that she's got good renal function and is otherwise a good candidate for a DOAC. Uh, how would you decide which DOAC to use? What factors would you weigh? Would you recommend a Pixaban over Rivaroxaban in a case like this? And why or why not? So the guidelines emphasize the importance of weighing stroke versus bleed risk for all patients with AFib. Like I mentioned earlier, this patient is high risk for stroke and is a candidate for anticoagulation due to her CHADS-VAS score of 4. Assuming that the patient does not have liver disease, history of major bleeding, or current NSAID, aspirin, or alcohol use, her HASBLED score would be 1 due to her age, so she is at a relatively low risk for bleeding. When trying to decide which DOAC to use, there are several factors to consider, including the frequency of dosing, as rivaroxaban and adoxaban are generally dosed once daily for AFib, while apixaban and dabigatran are dosed twice daily. So I would want to assess her medication adherence to see if she would benefit from less frequent dosing. Since all of the DOACs are only available as brand name medications at this point, it is prudent to factor in her insurance coverage to ensure she can afford the medication. I would also want to know her weight to determine appropriate dosing for apixaban specifically, as well as confirm the patient's medications, including over-the-counters, vitamins, herbals, and supplements, as they may contribute to a drug interaction. Another aspect to consider with this patient is her age. According to the 2019 Beers criteria, rivaroxaban and dabigatran should be used with caution in patients 75 and older due to the increased risk of bleeding. So that brings me to your last question and choosing between rivaroxaban and apixaban specifically. Based on the Beers criteria, the results of this study, and several others we mentioned in the commentary, the evidence favors apixaban over rivaroxaban due to a decreased risk of stroke and bleeding despite the more frequent dosing with apixaban. So apixaban would be my first choice for this patient, assuming there are no issues with cost or adherence. Well, Amy, Michelle, I want to thank you both. It's been great to have you here yet again on the iFormerX podcast and discussing stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation and the selection of an anticoagulant. Uh, and it's clear from your comments that you believe that apixaban is generally favored, particularly in older adults, those over the age of 75, where the risk of bleeding is higher. And that's because it appears that apixaban has a favorable risk profile compared to some of the other DOACs. Well, tell us what you think. Do you routinely recommend apixaban over rivaroxaban in your practice? Or do you prefer the ease of use of a once-a-day agent? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free to healthcare professionals. 
And if you happen to be a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, I hope you'll check out the board recertification program offered by the American Pharmacists Association. APHA has partnered with iFormerX to make our commentaries and podcasts available for board recertification and continuing education credit. To learn more about APHA's ambulatory care board prep and recertification program, click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. And lastly, a special thanks to Brandon Neck, a doctor of pharmacy student here at the University of Mississippi, who has been helping me edit the iFormerX podcast over the past year. Brandon has painstakingly listened to every episode and carefully edited out all the flubs and mistakes and misstatements that we've made. And believe me, we make plenty of flubs and misstatements. So thank you, Brandon, for making my job easier and using your behind-the-scene wizardry to create our podcast series. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.